0: to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Wednesday, April 10th, 2013. This is podcast number 299, and my name is Ben Stone. And again, we'll start with our announcements. Port Fest 10, if you don't know about it by now, is uh, June 17th through 23rd, 2013, at the Rogers Campground, Lancaster, New Hampshire. I'll be speaking Monday the 11th, and Friday, oh, I'm sorry, Monday at 11 a.m. and Friday at 12 noon. On central planning versus spontaneous order and discovering and defeating status thinking. And also, coming up pretty soon on April 27th, 2013, in Exeter, New Hampshire, at the Exeter Town Hall, is the Seacoast Annual Freedom Expo. And that's a day long event, no admission, no uh, reservations ahead of time, just show up at the Exeter Town Hall and have some fun and the first annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest hosted by the Michigan Peace and Liberty Coalition will be taking place in Brighton 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 I think it's Brighton Recreation Area Brighton Michigan and that's going to be for a long weekend Friday Saturday and Sunday August 17th 17th 18th and 19th and I'm happy to announce that in just a little while today My wife and I will be going over to the website, and I'll try to remember to put a link in today's show notes, and we'll be registering uh, uh, for us to attend, for my wife and I to attend. We'll be there, uh, if all goes well, we'll be there in our motorhome and uh, hanging around and having some fun with the folks at the Michigan Peace and Liberty Coalition. Now, uh, I want to mention again the the Bad Quaker Top 40 on our forum at uh, badquaker.com, if you go to badquaker.com, on the right-hand side, uh, you'll see a button for the forum. Hit that button, and uh, on the forum, in a section actually that you have to be logged in to see, but there's it's easy to log in. There's no charge or anything to log in. Um, there's a uh, uh, a space there where people are talking about the the top 40 Bad Quaker podcasts, and what we're going to do, what we're hoping to do. Is put together a list of the top forty Bad Quaker podcasts, and I'll go through and give them a little bit of editing just to take out, you know, uh, commercials or anything like that that might be in them. And we're going to uh, put them up on um, on the torrent. Uh, you know, uh, my friend over there at the Freedom Fiends, Michael W. Dean, is working with some of his uh, fellow fiends, and they're going to put the, the top forty Bad Quaker podcasts up on the up on the big torrents up there. And we were thinking of making a, uh, like a CD or a DVD or whatever uh, of the top 40 uh, podcast as well. And again, I want to thank the donors that are uh, uh, ringing in to help, uh, you know, support badquaker.com and help that are help sending my wife and I up there to the first annual Midwest peace and freedom, peace and Liberty fest. And uh, some donations have come in and I really appreciate that. Now, today I want to talk about the flaw of consequentialism, but before I do that, I want to lean back a little bit and mention uh, some stuff from from yesterday, or no, from day before yesterday's podcast, when I was talking about uh, Brian Kaplan and uh, some of that stuff. So I wanted to go back and talk just for a moment about the public goods problem. Uh, Not that I want to go through the whole thing again, it's just that... Uh, I had referred to um, Brian Kaplan's uh, uh, frequently asked questions, and they're really good. I like them. They're really good because uh, Brian does a really good job of stating the various anarchist arguments in different ways so that you get to see um, what each different group, how they they handle uh, roughly the same question. But I did want to, you know, sort of as a side note to that discussion, I wanted to uh, I wanted to mention that, you know, really, um, whether we're talking about, you know, uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, Brian Kaplan, uh, you know, um, David Friedman, Um, any uh, Lou Rockwell any of the people in the spectrum of uh, of all of us that consider ourselves anarchist and even more even more radical to the left and even more radical to the right and all the different aspects of of uh, anarchism in in very many ways we can agree on some on some of the most important aspects of this part of our problem I really believe is that uh, in our attempt to communicate a good portion, if not you know, the vast majority of our communications is done by text in one form or another. Whether we're talking about you know printed articles or whether we're talking about books or whether we're talking about you know uh, on on the internet in one form or another, it's it's it basically text, and text is a text is a flawed at best and often a miserable way to communicate. So uh, we have certain limitations within that. And, um, and that, in and of itself, communicating by way primarily of text, is a really obvious way for us uh, to find disagreement with one another because it's almost impossible to fully... Um, to fully explore and explain a position, just using text. So, uh, so I, I don't mean to be picking on Brian today. I do. I think since since I pointed out, since I used his frequently asked questions, his anarchist frequently asked questions, I I think it's I think it's important that I point out a flaw that Brian made in there. And uh, that's specifically in frequently asked question number fifteen. In the section titled "Objection number One, the behavioral uh, assumptions of public goods theory are false. Brian says it is it is simply not true that people always act in their narrow self interest uh, charity exists, and there is no reason to think that the charitable impulse might not be cultivated to handle public goods, oh, I'm sorry, to handle uh, public goods problems voluntarily. On an adequate basis, now I just want to take this apart a little bit, and where he says um, where he says that it 's simply not true that people always act these two lines basically these two lines is people are it, that it 's simply not true that people always act in the narrow self interest and that charity exists, and there 's no reason to think that the uh, that the charitable impulse might not be cultivated to handle the public goods problem well it 's kind of like saying it's simply not true that you have to water your garden. Water exists, and there's no reason to think that rain won't fall. Now, you see, what we're doing here is we're starting out. The first line is wrong. It's just dead wrong. And the premise of the first line doesn't even lead to the assertion of the second line. So, in other words, with, with um, back to Brian's uh, example here, he says, it is simply not true that people always act in their narrow self-interest. Well, let me deal with that first. This statement indicates a serious misunderstanding of human nature and a failure to think through the reasons for human actions. Humans are charitable because it feels good to be charitable. Charity is self-satisfying. It's self-serving. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, You give because something deep inside you drives you to give. And when you give, you feel better that you did that. Afterwards, you feel better. Um it's, it's like every other natural urge that we have. It, it's self-satisfying. It's self-rewarding. Um, an example of this would be, um, let's say there was a charity. Let's say that you could, now, of course, this is imagined, but let's just say there was a charity and you could give to it uh, anonymously. And, um, and you would have to give to it blindly. In other words, you have no idea what good thing is going to Let's say you give $100 to this charity, and you have no idea what good thing the charity is going to do with the $100. Now, let's just assume for this example that you know absolutely know that you can trust the people who are running the charity. So they're not going to rip anybody off. They absolutely will give your money to a good for a good cause. So you so you have this charity, it's absolutely anonymous. You give to it in a way that nobody, even the people in the charity, know that you gave them anything. And you have no way of knowing what the money will be used for. And the people who receive the money or receive whatever the goods are that the charity that the charity provides will have no idea that you sent it to them. Now, if you have your choice of that organization to give your money to or another organization where you can see the direct result of your charity, where you know exactly where your money went and you can see what happened with it. Which charity do you think most people would give to? Now, you think about this just for a minute here. Just imagine, you know, there's all these charities, like there's people on TV late at night that come on and they show pictures of starving children. And they show uh, little girls with no shoes. And they have all this, you know, they have all this, um, this whole song and dance that they go through. And then they tell you, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to send you a picture of this little child. And your money is going to go directly to help this child. You can sponsor this child. Now, this is a fantastic marketing ploy. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad or it's a good charity or a bad charity or a ripoff. Or I'm not judging the charities themselves that do this. I'm saying it is a wonderfully um, a successful marketing uh, procedure. It's, it's really good because it gives the person who is giving a direct link, uh, uh, to, to the, to the person who's receiving the, the charitable donation. So you see exactly the person, you see the little girl's face. You get to, they, they'll send you a picture of them giving her a new pair of shoes. They'll send you a picture of the little boy getting his hair cut and getting cleaned up. And now he's got a nice shirt on. They send you a direct feedback of what is being done with your money. Now, if you think about these two examples, which one would you give to? One that is entirely anonymous, where uh, you have no idea where, you're giving totally in the blind, you have no idea where the money is going, all you know that it's being used well. Or you have the other one where you can see the direct result of your charity. Don't you think most people would prefer to see the direct result? And why is that? The reason why is not just because, see, we already assumed into it, that the first charity is a hundred percent honest. So honesty is not in the question, but you want to see what's done with your charity because you want the satisfaction of seeing and, and, and saying to yourself, wow, look what I did. I did a good thing. Now you think about something like Christmas or a birthday or any other th- event like that, where you give to, to some specific person and you give them a gift, or maybe it's a husband and a wife and the, and the husband gives the wife a gift Part of the process is the reward that comes from giving and it's a reward, a reward that's deep inside you. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a, there's a, there's like a, there's a psychological reward to charity that's built into the mind of every healthy human. Once you take this even to, uh, you know, to a, in, into the wild, into uh, a natural setting where, where man is, uh, you know, struggling with nature. And even in a situation like that, once your belly is full and once you're warm, then you immediately begin to feel the need to help other humans to get their bellies full and to get them warm. This, this urge is a primal, uh, primal species-saving mechanism that, that, made our, that, that made one human reach down and grasp the arm of another human and pull him up a tree to get him out of the reach of the claws of line. Even if you don't know that other person, you have compassion for them and you're willing to reach out and help them. This is what has caused our species to survive. Or one of the things that has caused our species to survive and thrive is that we have compassion toward other human beings. And there's a built-in mechanism in our mind that rewards that compassion, that, re- that, we're re- that rewards that charity. Now, you can attribute this to God if you feel like it, or you can attribute this to survival of the fittest if you prefer, but humans, as a species, are too weak to exist in nature without innate compassion we just we just wouldn't be able to make it. People say, "Well, humans are social characters well, that may be true to a certain extent. We like to have company, we like to be around other humans generally, but it's the compassion towards other humans. That makes us that way. We want to see other people survive. We want to be, uh, see other people um, uh, thrive and and be happy. We like that. We enjoy it. Why do you think one person, when one person is laughing, it, it it stirs other people to laugh? Because because we we receive a certain amount of pleasure in the pleasure of others. We this is just a natural thing. Now the problem with this is that. Uh, like every other one of our natural tendencies, the state, the very existence of the state tends to dumb down the compassion that we that naturally uh, uh, is in humans. And this uh, that that compassion that's served us so well over eons of time, um, the state will tend to try to replace that uh, that compassion with some form of aggression. Now, um, here's here's the source of Kaplan's blunder. He says, uh, in short, most of the public goods problem is an artificial creation of economists' unrealistic assumptions about human nature. Anarchists would uh, surely agree, oops, I'm sorry, anarchists would surely disagree among themselves about human nature, but almost all would agree that there is more to the human character than Hobbesian self-interest. And then he goes on to say that, moreover, charitable impulses can even give incentives to uncharitable people to behave fairly. Now, he's kind of got a contradiction here in what he's saying, but the blunder is in starting with a false Hobbesian reality and then arguing using that Hobbesian terminology. You know, Hobbes is the one that said that uh, human existence, basically without government, is uh, brutish and short and, you know, uh, humans just um, just crawl around on the ground eating worms and fighting with each other constantly. If it weren't for the state, we'd all just be sitting in the mud rubbing, uh, you know, greasing our hair, eating worms, arguing with each other. It's that kind of a, that kind of a mentality that, Hobbes, that, that the Hobbesian approach brings. Well, that's entirely false. It's setting up a false argument to begin with. So uh, Kaplan's blunder is in assuming this false Hobbesian reality... And then trying to make an argument with that, um, I would say don't let your enemy define your terms. A good example of this, you know, if you're in a conversation and you accept the word anarchy as meaning chaos, then uh, you're not going to be very successful at arguing that anarchy is peaceful. If you've already if you've already allowed the other person in the conversation to accept that anarchy means chaos, you see it's a it's a self contradictive way of thinking. It's illogical to say that people don't always act in their own self-interest, and yet charitable impulses cause uncharitable people to be charitable. I mean, that's basically what what uh, Brian said there—that uh, you know that uncharitable people will suddenly become charitable through these Im- uh, through these impulses, and then. But it, he already said we don't have those, those impulses. By accepting the, the Hobbesian uh, theory to begin with. And I know that, that that Brian actually rejects the Hobbesian theory, but I'm saying within that conversation, he makes that flaw. So it's better to understand that, that charitable impulses are natural to humans. They're a, they're a natural part of the human experience. And uh, and they serve a purpose in the survival of our species. Um, they're a psychological mechanism that drives charity and and that charity is uh, self-satisfying. It's like the old saying, you know. There's there's so much truth in old sayings. But there's an old saying that says a good deed is a reward unto itself. When you do a good, when you do good, you feel good about it. It makes you feel better. And there's science behind this. Um, serotonin is believed to be a hormone that acts as a natural tranquilizer and gives us a feeling of comfort and satisfaction. Now, there's a a doctor named Daniel, I believe it's uh, uh, Ammon. It might be Ammon, but I believe it's Ammon, Dr. Daniel Ammon. And I use that, you know, the doctor. Well, we won't get into the the Quaker thing with titles today. But anyway, so this doctor, uh, Daniel Ammon, um, he's worked extensively in areas of uh, brain trauma, uh, attention deficit, hyper, uh, hyperactivity disorder, addictions, anxiety, depression, dilemma, de- dementia, and, um, and obesity. Uh, he's authored a bunch of different books, and he spoke at the TED conferences and so forth. He's worked extensively with uh, NFL f- uh, football players that have, had, that have suffered uh, long-term brain injuries. Now, his research has indicated that serotonin levels are a critical aspect of mood and behavior. And, uh, you know, when you, when you engage in charity, it's been also shown scientifically that when you engage in charity, uh, serotonin levels in your brain increase. They're, they're sort of rewarding you for that act of charity. So literally, there's a chemical reason why you feel better when you give. And, uh, and so how would that develop? Well, it, it, it has developed um, as, a, uh, as a mechanism that guarantees that humans will have a tendency to help other humans. Now, the state has interrupted this natural process by using compulsion and, uh, and distorting incentives. The state forces us to accept a twisted version of charity, and it lacks that reward mechanism. Uh, you know, taxes rob you. And they rob the poor. Taxes rob the poor. A lot of people don't realize this, but the poor, considering that the poor earn a lot less money than, say, rich people do, then they pay uh, proportionately a much higher percentage of their income into taxes. And taxes exist in all kinds of hidden places. Keep in mind, when you go in and you buy, let's say you go buy a McDonald's hamburger, you're paying tons and tons of taxes on that hamburger that you don't see because they went in, uh, the farmer paid taxes when he bought the beef, the farmer paid taxes when he when he fed the, the cattle, the farmer paid taxes when he brought the cattle to the slaughterhouse, the slaughterhouse paid taxes, All the employees of all those people to pay taxes and all that happened before you and and it was transported there. It was handled there. It was all these different things were done with the lettuce on the hamburger and everything else. All this was done before the hamburger is handed to you and whether or not you pay taxes in your local state, you know, according to sales tax or whatever. Even if you don't pay any taxes on that hamburger, you've paid levels and levels and levels of hidden taxes. So the poor pay. Uh, even the poorest people in society, in, in American society, they still pay. Their ta- they still pay taxes, and it's all under the guise that this is supposed to help us, specifically helping the poor. We're supposed to believe that they collect taxes and then help the poor through all these different government charities, like welfare and all these, you know, unemployment, and all these different things. We're, we're we're forced to contribute to them, and then we're told to feel good about it. Um, because your your uh, your taxes go to to good things like helping the poor or setting people free in foreign countries or whatever the lies are. But the fact is, even with government authorized charities, you know they they offer all kinds of tax advantages to support uh, uh, the the government authorized charities over true charities. But the fact is, most uh, money that's given to state blessed charities goes to support the administration costs of that organization and very often lobbying costs to get the government to take more action. So for instance, uh, you know, without getting any getting into any specific charities, you give $100 to the average charity, maybe maybe 50, 60 or even $70 of that $100 goes just to pay the salaries of the workers in that charity that do nothing other than try to get more uh, donations, and then the odds are, even if it's something like, "Oh, fight cancer," or uh, you know, "Save the the butterflies," or whatever, whatever that th- that charity is, most of these government authorized charities have found out that uh, the most effective, um, you know, maybe not to, to for their ultimate goal, but the most effective way for them to function as an organization is then to take a good portion of those. Of that charitable money that's given to them, and hire lobbyists to get laws written in ways that support that charity. So you give a hundred dollars to a charity, you think they're gonna, you know, they're gonna save the 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 guacamole lizard or whatever, and so fifty, sixty, seventy dollars of the hundred goes to support the organization, another th- 20 or 30 goes to hire lobbyists that go and, and wine and dine politicians, that's all your money. And so how much actually goes to the guacamole uh, lizard or whatever it was I said a second ago? How much? Not, not very much, if any at all. And that's how the state authorized charities distort that, that immediate positive feedback of how real charity is supposed to work. Now, so, uh, so, and when you think of the natural way that nature controls serotonin in the brain, which is actually through sunlight, through exposure to sunlight and through charity and these things that you do to feel good like this, um, now, uh, that's, that's the natural way of, of your body controlling, you know, your, uh, serotonin levels. And what's the government way? Well, the government way is to manipulate your serotonin levels with grain, Prozac, uh, Praxall, Zoloff, these kind of things. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about with grains, um, again, let's go back to James C. Scott and the art of not being government, uh, the art of not being governed. And let's understand that there's this really close association between the overproduction of grains, the control of slaves, and the state. And these things are, are all wrapped up in one. So it shouldn't shock anybody that the government wants to control. And, and it's not it's not like a conspiracy. I'm not saying that. It's not a thought-out process. It's just the natural processes of government, of how government works. And I'll get into more about that in, in just a minute. But just to get back to the Brian Kaplan thing for a moment, it, you know, Brian draws the right conclusion, but only after giving ground to his enemy and fighting his enemy according to his enemy's conditions of battle. And this is always unwise. Understanding human action is critical in understanding the difference between ideas that lead us in the direction of freedom and ideas that lead us to accept the slavery of the state. Now, that takes me back to today's topic of consequentialism. I wanted to talk about the flaw of consequentialism. Well, I'm going to do that as soon as I get back from this break. So stick with me, and when I get back, I'll talk about the flaw of consequentialism. BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to get set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have helpful and friendly 24-7, 365, live technical support, and a 99.9% uptime guarantee, and they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website, or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to BadQuaker.com and click on the button for HostGator. And thank you very much for supporting BadQuaker.com. Would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to BadQuaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon, it won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting badquaker.com. Thank you. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the break. So consequentialism, the flaw of consequentialism. Consequentialism assumes this point. Um, the problem with government is that it's not the best uh, method for achieving a goal. There are more efficient ways to do things than government. Uh, Anarchical methods of voluntary, co-op- of co- voluntary cooperation and or the market are better ways to get a positive result than government. Now, that's, that's basically, um, from what I can tell, that's the basic uh, point of consequentialism, that... You know, you look at things, you see what's the most efficient. You accept certain certain methods over other certain methods because they're more efficient, they they're better at accomplishing the goal. So when you apply consequentialism to uh, to anarchy and the existence of government, then you come to the conclusion that you know there are methods um, uh, that you can accept that are far more um, efficient and will produce better results. Than you know than the aggression of government. So then we can look at things and we can say, well, for example, if we start to privatize um, you know A, B, and C, and we privatize A, B, and C, then then things will run much better. You can say. Um, well uh, private railroads run more efficiently than government operated railroads, so what we need to do is get government to release control of the railroads, and then we 're going to have you know a whole a whole lot better society will be better, everything will be better because um, because the market can control the railroads better than the government can, so you allow the market to, uh, you know, private, uh, private property and this kind of thing, private companies, and you allow them to, uh, to control, let's say the railroad rather than trusting the government to do it. And so it'll run better. So that's the theory. Well, again, we're going back with the assumption that, you know, it's like the government, yeah, they're flawed. They're not so great we can we can figure out a better way to do things. But the consequentialist view misses the point of government because it ignores the nature of the state and the purpose of government. And the purpose of government is to serve the state. And for the longtime listeners, you know, you've heard me talk about over and over this difference between what the state is and what government is. And I and I've talked a lot of times about how you have to know your enemy. If you haven't heard me really describe what the difference between government and state is, I'm going to work that in uh, to today's conversation. But for the longtime listeners, don't worry. I'm not going to completely go through it again. But but I am going to at least try to. You know, we've had a, a steady increase in the number of listeners, and this is uh, especially in the last two weeks, and even in the last couple of days, we're seeing a, a steady increase in the number of listeners. So a lot of people have not heard this difference that I talk about between, uh, understanding what the government is and understanding this myth or this concept or this religion of the state. So, um, and like I said, if you don't know your enemy, you have to know your enemy. If you don't know your enemy, then how are you going to present any kind of a defense against it? And how are you going to present any kind of offense against an enemy that you don't know anything about, or you don't understand? Now, the problem with the consequentialist is that the typical consequentialist doesn't grasp the concept of the state and only views government as an awkward inconvenience at most. And this is just not correct. You have to get beyond this idea that the state and the government are the same thing and government is just, eh, it's not so efficient. You have to get past that. You have to understand, you know, one of the... um, if I was to list, make if I was to make a list, like um, things I've learned from Robert Higgs, if I was to put something like that, the, the thing that Bob Higgs uh, has said to me that just struck right into my heart, like, oh, that's, oh, why didn't I see that? Government is blindingly efficient at doing what it is supposed to do. Government is highly evolved. It's a flexible machine, and it acts to keep the bulk of the population in a condition of servitude to a system that rewards a small subset of humanity. Government does exactly what it's supposed to do. Government is not supposed to control private property. Government is not supposed to provide you with with security or with justice. Government is not supposed to provide you with roads or not supposed to provide you with police, not supposed to provide you with any of these things that people imagine. Government is not supposed to keep corporations in check. None of those things are the purpose of government. The purpose of government is to serve the system. That rewards a small subset of humanity. The purpose of government is to prop up the state. And it does so very efficiently. Today, you might look around and you might say... Oh, you know, the, uh, the American government is in bad shape. It's, it's, it's on the, you know, it's, it's heading toward a collapse. Or you might look at a worse government, a government that's even in worse condition, that is. You might look at Cyprus, or you might look at Syria, or you might look at North Korea, or you might look at, you know, any other government. And you might say, well, that government's in really shaky condition. Well, you think they are. It gives that impression that it is. But really, it's not. It's functioning with blinding efficiency. Um, as a different way of looking at it, you know, yesterday I was talking to Jeffrey Tucker, and we were talking about the follies of the anti-Fed frenzy, all the people that are chanting in the Fed or audit the Fed or whatever. Well, this is this is a misunderstanding. The Federal Reserve does not exist because people in government and banking thought it would be the most efficient way for the market. Um, uh, you know, for the market to have a money function. That's, that's not why the Federal Reserve came into existence. The Federal Reserve exists to rob and enslave you. It is a tool for that purpose. That's why it was invented. That's why it was put in place. So the Federal Reserve is working perfectly. It's doing exactly what it was supposed to do. Now, unfortunately, uh, you know, some light has been shined on it of late. So government is, like I said, government is very flexible. Government is more than happy to take something that's very important, like the Federal Reserve, and just throw it out the window. But do you really want to trust government to fix the situation that government created? Because, like I say all the time, we know what government's going to do. When the demand to fix the Federal Reserve gets so strong, when people start to understand how the Federal Reserve is robbing them, and the cry goes out for government to fix government, which is what the, you know, what the anti-Fed people are doing. When that happens, you can trust government to fix the situation. You can. They'll give you greenbacks issued by Congress, thereby robbing and enslaving you even more efficiently. That's what, uh, that's what government will do for you. When they kill the Fed, that's what they're going to do. Because they're not there. Government is not there to make the, the monetary systems function correctly. That's not their purpose. They, they have no interest in that. Their only interest is in increasing their own ability to, uh, to enslave you. Government exists to serve that old man-made god, the state. Government is extremely flexible. Government will sacrifice any human or any group of humans, including the ruling elite, in order to further serve the state. Now, this is the problem not only with the consequentialist view, but with any of the different groups that think that you can slowly shrink government until it becomes small enough to eliminate or until it becomes small enough to tolerate Anybody who accepts that that you can slowly shrink government or you can get government to cut itself or you can get government to regulate itself, or that you can sign co- some kind of uh, constitution or you can you know get a new constitution and that 'll or g- return to the constitution, and somehow a magic piece of paper is going to cause government to suddenly start to serve the people. This is a complete misunderstanding of what the government is and what it serves and what its purpose is. The government is not here to serve you. It's not. It never was. It never has been. It was never designed for that purpose. The government is a tool in the toolbox of the state, and that's all that it is. It exists to serve the myth, the religion of the state. Now, seeing the government... Uh, As the problem, you know, and and that's the the flaw, whether you're the the constitutionalist or the consequentialist or the minarchist or whoever, however you fit into that scheme, seeing the government as the problem is very much like seeing guns as the cause of gun crime. The government uh, and all of its blind superstitious followers are simply the tools of the enemy of mankind, the state. That's all they are. They're just tools of the state. Now, I have a radical proposition, at least for my new listeners. Some of my old listeners are not going to see this as all that that radical. But I have a radical proposition for my new listeners. And this may shock the religious, and it may shock the the non-religious as well. Some very religious people believe that the Bible is the word of God. And some non-religious people believe that the Bible is just a silly fairy tale and nothing more. Well, let me ask you a question, and I'm not taking either side on that argument. I'm just asking you to just think this through in your mind for a moment. Even if you think the, God, the Bible is the Word of God, or even if you think that the Bible is absolutely a fairy tale, and it's it just rejected, it makes no sense, it's stupid, it's not, it just however you fall on that scale, just consider a few questions for a moment. Just let these questions sort of roll around in your head. What if the biblical story of the beast, the Antichrist, is something completely different from what we have been uh, told throughout the ages? What if the biblical story of the beast, the dragon, that old serpent, Lucifer, the Antichrist, what if this is a, a pragmatic warning and a description of um, the logical conclusion of believing in that God, the state? What if it was written by someone who knew That uh, in order for this warning of the state to survive, that it had to be encrypted in a way that was both obvious and hidden. Now, this is just a thought. Uh, The story of the Antichrist, it may be the word of God, but it may be also the result of someone sitting down and asking, what are the consequences of a whole society believing in the myth that a small group of central planners can make law and inflict it upon mankind? What if that's all that the story of the Antichrist is? What if it's just someone saying, okay, well, if everybody believed this nonsense about the government and about the ability of humans to make law and inflict them on other people, this myth of the state, what if somebody thousands of years ago figured out that there is a myth, that the state is based on that myth, that is essentially a religion, and this religion is a false religion, But the more people that believe it, the more people that believe in the state and they accept government, they accept the aggression of government. They accept the idea that a small elite group of people can run everything. What if what if that's taken out to its logical end? What if somebody sat down and thought that through and then said, you know what, I need to write a story so that people can uh, can understand this. And what if they what they what if they put that into words? Now I think about the characteristics of the biblical Antichrist. He was the opposite of Christ. Of course, we know that Christ gave the message that essentially the zero aggression principle, you know, uh, the golden rule, this was the message of Christ. But the Antichrist is the opposite of that. The Antichrist is based on aggression. And the Antichrist is a false God. It's a false salvation. In Islam, the Antichrist is called the deceiving Messiah. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it, but, but that's the translation of what they call it in Islam, the deceiving Messiah. The Antichrist is a many-headed thing. It, uh, it can be killed, and it still, comes, it still lives. This is the description given in, given in the Bible of the Antichrist. We know that uh, um, Lucifer, Satan, in the Bible, tempted Jesus with bread and we know that uh, uh, he tempted Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, remember this, he says that he owned all these governments of the world. If he didn't own them, then Jesus wouldn't have been tempted by the offer that, uh, that, you know, that Satan could have given them to him. If I come to you and I'm like, hey, 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 I want to give you a bridge. And you're looking at me you're like, you don't own any bridge. Well, you're not tempted, are you? The only way that Jesus could have, could, have been a, uh, could have been tempted by the offer of all the kingdoms of the world is if Jesus understood that the owner of all the kingdoms of the world is the devil, the Antichrist, Satan, Lucifer, the beast. The only way Jesus could be tempted, I'm saying it again to emphasize this point, the only way it could be an actual temptation is if it's real, you see? Jesus knew it was a real offer. Jesus understood when Lucifer offered him the kingdoms of the world, Jesus understood that the kingdoms of the world are the realm of Satan. They serve him. They serve the Antichrist. They serve Lucifer. They serve that old dragon, the serpent. The kingdoms of the world are his realm. And he seeks to control, according to the biblical description of the beast, he seeks to control all trade, all commerce, all labor. You can't work without his mark. You can't trade without his mark. You can't buy and sell. And the other thing that it describes about Lucifer and Satan and this beast is that it desires to be seated in a temple in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole Jerusalem thing because that could be symbolic or it could be realistic. I don't know. Now, if you've heard me talk before about this, you realize that when I'm talking about this being, this the state, this id of our minds, that's that's what I'm talking about. You know, Ju- uh, Jupiter. Sure. We'll, we'll go with Jupiter. Jupiter was a God that existed. Jupiter existed in the minds of the believers. He existed and they acted based on their belief that he existed. And so to them, he was real. He was real because he affected their uh, the choices that they made and the acts that they took. Every time that they acted believing that Jupiter would be pleased or displeased with their actions, Jupiter existed. And you can fill in any other God. You can, you can make that Thor. You can make that Baal. You can make that Tammuz. You can make that any God, any God that you believe in, and you act according to that belief. It's real in your mind. If you were, if you were in a house, and you, were, and you smelled smoke, and you were fully convinced that that house is on fire, you could, you could hear the house burning. You could smell. You could feel the heat. And your only way to escape is to jump out a four-story window. And you jump out the window, whether or not the fire really exists, it existed in your mind and you acted because of that. You see, so in reality, there was a fire, even if there was no fire. So I'm telling you today that the state is that religion in your mind that you believe in, that you act accordingly. And we can call it the devil, we can call it Lucifer, we can call it the Antichrist, But the goal of this thing within the human id, within the human, the collective human id, the goal of it is to control all trade, all commerce, all labor, all human action, and to bring all of us in subservience unto it. And so how do we compete with something like that? How do we defeat it? Well, the first thing you have to do is recognize that it is our enemy. If you don't understand that the state is our enemy and that the government is a tool of the state then you're not even in the fight. So the real problem with the consequentialists, with the minarchists, with the small government libertarians, and with all those others that think that we can shrink government and make it tolerable or make it small enough that we can uh, push it out of the way, the problem with all of those people is that their failure to understand that government is functioning perfectly. Now think about that for a minute. In America, in North Korea, in Syria, in Cyprus, in ancient Babylon, in Rome, as the city burned and Nero watched, government was functioning perfectly with blinding efficiency as the the Nazis rounded up Jews and put them into concentration camps. Government was functioning with blinding efficiency as the bombs fell out of the, the, the bomb bays of, of, uh, of planes flying over Nagasaki, and as thousands of people were incinerated, government was functioning with blinding efficiency. That's what government does. It is simply a tool of the state to force us, to make us, to trick us into believing that we must have government. Every time a beloved leader takes a benevolent action to help his people. And every time the people drag the corpse of a dictator through the streets, the state is served. The state is served every election. And the state is served every revolution. Every time there's a revolution, the state gets stronger. Every time there's election, the state gets stronger. Because these are the realm of the state is expressions of faith in the state when you re- when you have a revolution what do you hope to accomplish you want to tear down the government right you want to tear down the government in a revolution and put up what you see every revolution serves the state and every election serves the state you have to know your enemy but first you have to know you have an enemy The consequentialist view is that central planning is inefficient. The consequentialist is striking at the leaves while ignoring the root. Folks, thanks for listening today. I want you to remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks.